You're listening to The Middle Ground. This week's guest, Paul Michael Eyre. Hey, Paul. Hello, how are you? Really well, thank you. Happy Easter. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this today on this blessed day, which is yeah. Good Friday. Have you had fish and chips today? No, no. I've had, um, I've had chicken and uh, um, I tried to make a, a barn me, but in a wrap with chicken. Is chicken allowed today or like, fuck it? I <laughs> was it red meat? I don't know. I don't understand. Like, Honestly, I just use this day as an excuse to go and buy fish and chips. Like, I don't... Like, Why is fish, and chi- is fish and chips a thing? Is it because he gave out fish and bread and so forth? Or is that- yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't You're the know. first person I've heard the fish and chip thing from, ever. Right. See, I'm from England originally, so fish and chips is like a daily thing. Ah, of course. So it's like not that special. I understand. Yeah. Well, I'm super stoked to have you on because I really am inspired by your work. I really appreciate that you work across mediums. And you're also not a dick, you know? So <laughs> that's... it's so rare that's so rare in our industry (laughs) like let's talk about it isn't it though like sometimes sometimes i meet people i'm like oh man i love your work and then i meet them at like a bar or something and i'm like god you suck (laughs) (laughs) see i'm too naive for that i'm too um um because i come from a a artificial intelligence background like i worked in computing and so forth for Mm. many years yeah so it's all just really novel to me. And I'm too naive to understand when people are being mean to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for a long time, everyone was great. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So can we like go back to the start? Like you mentioned you were from England. Like were you born in England? Or did you be born in Australia? I'm born in England and I moved here when I was eight years old. Um, and that was a big thing for me because I came from a very big family. I've got 19 first cousins. My dad was one of seven, wartime family. His dad would only be back for maybe like a month or so of the year and then they'd just pop out another kid and then they'd go away again and da da da. So I came from a big place and um, the school I was in, uh, I was never more popular than I was in year two, uh, which is a shame. Um, <laughs> but our family knew everyone in the school there and our school, our whole school, like, threw a farewell party for us. Wow. And then I came to Australia, where I became the least popular person. Why? Uh, not re- oh, I don't know. Just um, you go from having such roots everywhere, and you've known people for a long time, to they're already in their tight knit groups. Yeah. And it was also way out in Western Sydney, and it's a bit a bit rougher out in Western Sydney <laughs> than say the East. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty fun. Um, yeah, right. so when you came to Australia, was it like the weirdest thing in the world? Did you sort of get off the plane and go, what the <laughs> fuck? No, okay, so but I, um, we were not, a, we were not a, a well-off family, right? But to give you an idea of the inherent cultural differences, the first thing that happened, I remember it like it was yesterday, when I came into class for the first time, halfway through year two, I walked in and everyone was sitting on the floor. And that was... I was like, that's bizarre. Like, they have chairs and they're all sitting in a circle and they were playing show and tell. I had never heard of show and tell. Really? Right? Yeah, I know. And they, well, they assumed that everyone knew the rules, right? I was a, I was a pretty bright kid when I was in, in year two. 
Um, I was in about the equivalent of year six by the time I came over here. And I, and I was used to being able to figure things out. And I sat down in this circle and they're like, okay, we're doing show and tell. And I had no idea what that was. I was like, okay. And I sat down and the person next to me was talking about going to Uluru and climbing that. Right? And then he clapped twice. And then everyone looked at me. And I, <laughs> I just I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I know. Um, I'm like, are you going to tell a story about something that's happened? I was like, I haven't prepared this. I, I'm, I'm, and I just sat there for a while until they said, oh, if you want to go, you, um, you just have to, if you want to skip, you just have to clap. So I didn't like, and then they said, no, 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 you've got to clap twice. And I went, in my head, I was like, does that include the clap I've already done? Because I go, this is the first question. This is the first test I've been given. <laughs> um, I was like, if I clap twice, I can never go back because I've already clapped more than two. Like, this is how like, overly and little I was a kid. But I figured that if I just clapped once again, <laughs> then I'd look stupider than clapping twice. Yeah, it was, it's amazing it's like, that everyone thinks that that's kind of a universal around the world thing. And from, from that point on, I never really fit in <laughs> with, the cla- <laughs> with the class. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I've, everything appears to be different here. I got yeah. given a book that was owned, priorly owned by someone else that had answers drawn all the way through it, blah. So I started writing stories. Yeah. And the first one I wrote, uh, we had to rewrite uh, fairy tales or whatever. And the tortoise and the hare was the first thing I ever wrote that I got a laugh from. And then I was like, ah, I'm not too different. So was that the first time where you went, okay, well, I'm going to make stuff and make people laugh. I, I, no, no, it was um, the first time that I did that. But then the idea of actually doing it for a living didn't occur to me until I was about 22, three. At all. At all. Because I'd come from such a uh, hard working family, the idea of doing that ne- never occurred to me. Like it was, it was really interesting for me. I, I like after that, I, I write or whatever, and that was kind of discouraged. Like it's not in in Australian journal. Like the arts isn't encouraged, and so that just kind of faded away. And because I was good at mathematics and so forth, and I started programming when I was six, like that was where I was going. And in my family, it was like, oh, he's going to be the one that makes all the money. <laughs> and then the next instance I had of a chance of doing it was doing drama in year ten. I did uh, drama in year 10 and French. And then my dad told me to drop them both in year 12 because they're not going to give me a job. And I did. And they were the two highest scoring things that I had. And also the only outlet I had of expressing anything. It's very British to be like stiff upper lip, not express anything. And because I could just sit in my room, da 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 da, and my parents were going through a hard time just before they split up. And yeah, I got extremely sick before the HSC. Like it was all boiling up but then i got a scholarship to go to unsw did programming there and after a year there i was like there's some there's something up with life i go there has to be something more than this there's like i'm missing something like people uh, you've got poets that talk about things being overwhelming like um, and experiences they've had in love and life and, and i was like, i don't have that like i'm not everything's okay like everything's good i'm doing well but I think I'm missing something. And that's what I said. I had that um, conversation with my friend walking through uni and I go, there has to be something. People say that uni is the best years of your life and it's just not. And I walked through and then a pamphlet for a, uh, the computer science engineering first ever comedy review kind of landed and I read that and I was like, Fuck, why, why not this? Why not this thing? And my friend was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll go into acting. And I was like, oh, I'll go into 
writing, I guess, and see what happens. And then from then on, my entire life, career, personality changed. How did you handle growing up? I mean, I don't want to say you were repressed, but... I was repressed. It's, <laughs> I think everyone in England, I think that's an, an English thing. It's a rite of passage. <laughs> Depression. <laughs> yeah. lived until you've been repressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you haven't lived whilst you've been repressed either. Yeah. Um, so how how did you handle that? Particularly, I mean, certainly in your teenage years, but also when you get before, you know, you do the review. I mean, were you acting out? Were you were you depressed? How do you sort of come to terms with that? Because it's a pretty big thing to to silence that part of your identity. Look, and look, a lot of people go through it. I certainly went through it. And I think, as you said, I mean, arts isn't particularly that heralded in Australia in, in you know, comparison to other things. So I think it's quite common. Yeah. How did you get through it? What did you do that you would probably do differently? And what advice do you have for the young'uns coming up who are probably going through it as well? Ah, uh, you see, that's, that's hard. I think it's, because um, I'd, say, I'd say that it was depression, to be honest. I'd say that I, I was extremely high-functioning depression. Like, um, that I was so active and so engaged and doing so much. Like, I'm, I'm, I get told often that I'm extremely intense as an individual in a variety of manners. And I was never much of a party person. Throughout high school, my outlet was um, I started performing at assemblies. I do as much. I was the class clown. I was, I, I guess, I kind of created uh, stories and as, as, like as part of my life almost, becoming a big storyteller. And I used to, I used to drink in insanely as almost an amusement. Like I took, it's almost like I took myself out of the equation and was like, let's see how Paul handles this. Like, like if, if, if you had access to yourself to use as a, almost like as a pawn in anything. It's like, well, let's, let's see what happens to him when this occurs. What was it like when you did the review at uni? Was there, did a certain release come with that for you? Because I would imagine after so many years, it would be like opening Pandora's box. It really was. Like it, it felt like I was alive again. Well, no, not, not alive again, because it had been so young since I'd been kind of switched off. Like, I, it's like I didn't know what being alive felt like anymore. And the only really outlets I had was, um, the only outlets I had rather was when I would get, I'd write myself off. I'd be, I'd have to write myself so much to even release. Like, the, I, I used to know in a bottle of vodka exactly how much I'd have. As in, I can have up to, how many shots were in there? 22. I can have 15 shots and be okay, right? As in, I'd be the one that talked to the cops. But then from 16, between 16 and 17, <laughs> was like paralytic all over the floor, throwing up everywhere. <sighs> and so I would always try and keep in the, it was like shooting for the stars and then stopping just there where I'd be, hey, fun drunk. This is what opened me up into, um, exploring, doing introspection and so forth for myself in general. So if you'd asked me at 25, I'd say that I was the sanest person that you've ever met, right? I extremely ordered, da, 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 don't fly off the handle, no emotions everywhere, da, 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 right? And I think if I'd gone down that path, I would have been extremely successful, but probably dead by now. Either like from intentionally from hating myself or from just treating myself terribly. And I think people confuse sanity with being able to follow all the rules and not reacting to anything. I agree. Which, again, is insane. <laughs> like Seriously, it's, people think I'm crazy now. And it's like, no, I'm just stepping into my emotions and I'm allowing myself to feel. That is what we are supposed to do. So I totally... Yeah, but it's also, it's also it's insane because no one can understand why you would willingly put yourself in 
the judgment of other people. Like we live in a, a time of extreme judgment. Yeah. Like we have, and you can tell by the shows that we watch, it's all about cooking being judged or houses being judged or judge, 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 judge. So what we're doing is insane because there's, there's two things that we fear the most. And um, it was a, there's a famous Jerry Seinfeld quote uh, or joke rather, which is the uh, number one, the one, number one biggest fear is public speaking. Number two is death, which means that if you're at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Right. And, and that's true. And it's like, when you, when you really think about that, like people go, ah, yeah, that's true. It's like, no, that's insane. Yeah, that's like, it's crazy. insane that you would rather die than stand and speak in front of someone. That's insanity. The, the idea that, that you do that willingly, mm-hmm. right, and put yourself out in front of people willingly is insane. And the thing that pe- people have to, to bring people like that down because otherwise they have to confront in themselves what makes them so scared. And we're, we're scared of, and the reason that we're scared of public speaking is because we can screw up, do something wrong, do something not perfect. And as a result, we can be ostracized by the group. And being ostracized in any group, any society is worse than death. So what we're doing is insane. And I, I encourage people to keep calling it that. And I'm fine with it. Like, 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 cause you're also putting yourself in financial peril. You're putting something in ludicrous amounts of peril. And people have to either decide that a, it's either worth it what you're doing and there is something more or you're insane. And it's easier to say you're insane because on surface, it's really easy to describe that. It's like the same thing could be said about Romeo and Juliet. Like the general thing about, Romeo and Juliet now is, ah, oh, it's not like great, I love stories, like just young kids being with their hormones and they're idiots. It's like, yeah, because it's easier to believe that than yeah. they were that in love. So what did you do afterwards? I mean, did you then finish the review and be like, that's it, I'm an actor, like caught the bug? No, I was not brave enough to do that. And this is, this is something that, that, to give you an idea of old me, like I was hyper, hyper logical and anything that can't be buttoned down, anything that can't be proved is irrelevant, important, and I will crush it. <laughs> like I was, I was a force to be reckoned with. And, and I go, there's not a single thing in the world that, that exists that can't be proven. And it's like, oh, that's not true. Like pain. Now you also any feeling like, and examples are like, like the matrix. Like, oh, how, how can you tell that everything's not made up? Whether or not that matters or not is the fact that you can't be sure that means it's uncertain yeah. almost by definition. Yeah. But anyone who was like me, younger, that has a repression of all that stuff, cannot allow that uncertainty. Like there's, there's something in you. And I've seen it. I've been into the pain. I've been into the disconnect. I've, I, after Peru, really, really been in it. It's that there was so much stuff in there, so much repressed stuff that I can understand why it was so important for me to win those arguments, to prove that everything is provable, everything is solid, to have some sort of certainty. But but now it's not so much. And so I'm not so adamant about convincing. Like as soon as I kind of noticed this and started unpacking my own life, I'm like, everyone's like, everyone, like you got to do this. Like, it's like anyone, like anyone that does a, like any sort of stage show. It's like, you just don't understand what it's like to be part of that, to be, to push yourself for something that is so temporary. You perform for one night, uh, one night, maybe two weeks or something like that. And it's to a certain group of people. And you have that experience with those people, then it's gone forever. And you will risk your career, your relationship, your money, like your, your sanity. You will work with people that you would never normally work with. And it's extraordinary, right? And you feel up and down and blah, blah, blah. It's like, because that's where life is meant to be in the up and down. And that. But we, we protect ourselves from all of that so much. And then we complain that life is boring or 
It's just how life's meant to be. It's meant to be boring. It's like, it's not. Because <laughs> no. I've seen the opposite. And it's like, yeah, but, but you'll look like an idiot in front of people. And you'll be embarrassed because you don't have money. And you won't, you've got no status symbols to show who you are. And I said, well, yeah, okay. I don't hear many actors or artists talk how you're talking because I mirror a lot of what you're saying right now. Yeah. What do you think, what do you think actors or artists could do to get into this mindset? Because what, and the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because I, I'm, there is a genuine, I'm genuinely worried for artists. I, the mindsets are so terrible. That's yeah. manifesting in so many awful ways. And you're, we can't really do our job properly because we've got all that in front of us. And it's super hard when you know we're watching the TV and like drama programs are being cut in favor of The Biggest Loser and MasterChef and judgment. More yeah. judgment, even more yeah. judgment. So what, I mean, what do you think is the solution there? Or what positive steps could we all start to take to um, get on this wavelength? The first positive step to it, if you cannot right now go, ah, oh, there's a person that I go to for help, then you have a problem. I don't mean a problem as in something that needs to be fixed. I'm saying it's just, it's just you're less than what you can be. The best way I can describe it is if people look at things like, um, like therapy and needing people and, and, and community, like relying on community, see all those as negative things. Now, it's taken me a long time, a long time to appreciate those things. And it was because I saw it as being bad or a burden or blah on someone else. Sure. Now, that's true. That can be the case. Um, but I am closer to all the people I've ever been a burden on now than I ever was. Right? And they're also willing to come to me with things that matter to them. Once you become someone that, that is, a, is not above asking for a help, you can be more of a help to other people. It also makes you more empathetic with other people. Also, it means that you can never, ever, ever, ever play a character that needs help. Because there will be a part of you deep in that refuses to look like that. You'll parody it in some way. Mm. I think, I think art is is. I think art is is a number of things. I think intelligence. As someone who has been in intelligent groups for his entire life, right? I can say single-handedly how damaging intelligence can be unchecked. And I think we see it in this rebuttal of things like Donald Trump, where they don't know what they want, but they don't want intelligent people, right? And of course, intelligence is good. It's like intelligence is the mastery of the past, right? As it pertains to the future, right? You can't be intelligent about patterns that you haven't seen, right? There's like intelligence is, um, is being able to go, oh, okay, I think this is going to happen. And it's based on the fact that you've learned something in the past or seen it before, right? And which is why doing art was so terrifying for me because, and, and that keeps you safe. Like intelligence is safe. It's predictable. Mm. It's predictable. This is how the future is. This is how every, everyone is. Da, 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 box them in. And it makes everyone a lot less interesting, but a lot less scary. And the, so intelligence, intelligence is great, but as soon as you get put on, on a stage in front of people, where you don't know what's going to happen, that's when you find out who you really are, not who you can be when you've had preparation time. Yeah. Right? It's why I can do, I, I would never have done something like this 10 years ago, right? Because I don't know what will make me look good and what will make me look bad. Right? <laughs> um, it took me a long time to get to a point of not caring 
right? And also re realizing how little it matters. We're too obsessed with image and not obsessed enough by um, actual substance. So at the moment, I think we're bearing too far on image and everyone that goes into acting is how do I look good and, and, and headshots and um, what looks good and how do I perform this better? And this is something I've only really learned in the last three years, which is embarrassing to say as a 34-year-old, but that it's that I was obsessed with the image in a different way, I guess, that there's things that I'm terrified of being seen as. And one of the hardest roles I ever played and one of the first massive breakthroughs I had in acting, and it was interesting to have two of probably the most severe um, uh, internal goals that I've ever had. One of them is to be be the best. I've always wanted to be the best at what I do, the most sincere, the, I, I wanted it to be correct, right? And this, this comes from my, like, that side of the brain. And the other side of me is that deep down in society, no man in his right mind wants to actually be believed to be a pedophile. Like, it's like, right, and, I, and I'm playing this pedophile on stage, for what? right? And for doubt. Right, okay, yeah. Sorry, you cut out yeah. why you said the play title. So like for the play. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. Oh, right, yeah. So, so for doubt, yeah. Um, no, I don't just like to play pedophiles, just incidentally. Um, yeah, but, I've played five now, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but there's, there's a deep part in, in I, I think, every man, particularly in this culture, that is terrified of being perceived to even, like, be near a child now. Like, it's... Generally, and even some women I've heard as well, like on stage, like you have this really deep instinct of not wanting to be perceived that way. So you were, so everything I was doing was at some level parody, sure, right? And Larry Moss could see that. It was like, ah, oh, I want to, I want, at some deep level, I want people to not believe that I could ever be like a pedophile, and it's, and you have to let that go to do it well, yeah. like. And I, I remember it like it was, it was insane. It was like I, I almost had like a psychotic break on stage. And it's my desire, my pushing myself that far that allowed me to break through that. And after I did that and performed on stage in what I'd say the most threatening manner I've ever been, and Larry Moss described it, it's like you're on stage. It's like he asked my partner, are you okay to be on stage with him because you're on stage with an animal? And I've, like, I'm a polite British boy. I've never been described as an animal in my life. But I felt dangerous. What, and, that, what was that like? I mean, Larry Moss called um, you an animal. Like, that's, that's great. My response to that was, uh, <laughs> like, it was like, uh, I enjoy this power. Yeah. And I was willing to have this power. And it's the kind of power that um, I'd say most guys, particularly actors, shy away from. The idea of the part of you that knows that you're strong and knows you can attack and knows you can do whatever you want. Like that is dangerous thinking unless you go there voluntarily and it becomes something that you tame. I think the biggest cause of um, things like uh, domestic abuse and all that, because um, having done a lot of introspective stuff, it's like I've met with men. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I hit my wife. And straight away I was like, oh, well, that guy's a fuckwit. Right, you just write him off in, in, in um, straight away. I say, no, but this guy is here doing this, I don't know, 10-day meditation or whatever it is I happen to be doing, right, to, to regain control of that. Yeah. 
right? And it's like, like it's, he's, he's working to do it. And, and I think that that's important, that the more that you try to run away from that, the more it becomes likely to come out. It's like what you resist persists. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's only by yeah. acknowledging the power and acknowledging the, 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 what you would call evil, which is really just a, a judgment that we have on ways that we like people to be and ways that we don't like people to be. Um, and again, that comes from the fear of public perception. Like you have to be willing to go in there and become used to that energy. Right. And it doesn't mean you go around like beating people up or whatever you get used to rage or anger, like the, the kind of primary emotions. And you go, yeah, okay. I'm now I'm used to anger and now I'm used to sadness and it becomes something that you don't, run away from or avoid or have to stop anyone that's causing it. It becomes something that you become stronger as a person. When did you start working professionally? Like how did that happen? So you do the review and then how many years is it until you go, okay, I'm, I'm an actor now. This is what I do. Right, so, um, it was eight years. What I'd said to myself is, so I did my first review and then I got asked to direct the following year. And then I got asked to be in a best of review down in Melbourne. Um, then I won Raw Comedy for New South Wales and went down to Melbourne and then did another show the year after with a different group of people. And in the back of my head, I was like, okay, now I'm about 26 after doing all of this stuff. And I've been doing my computing in the background whilst I was at it. And I also wrote a couple of plays myself and I was just writing like a fiend. Um, and I wrote about 400 sketches, I'd say, in that time. And I was just doing that and then just doing my computing. And it was fine for me because it was just a hobby that I had, a hobby that was slowly taking over my entire life. And then when I got, um, I was part of a show called The Ronnie Johns Half Hour. And when I found out that I wasn't going to be part of the TV show that launched as a result of that, I was like, that hit me pretty hard. And I kept working anyway. Because that's the benefit of ignoring all your emotions. You keep working regardless of how you feel. And then I went, okay, I've got to give myself until I'm 27 to make it in the industry. Because if I don't make it by then, right, I've got to go back to computing and actually have a career. Otherwise, I'll end up like poor and destitute, which is the one thing I was meant to take our family out of rather than perpetuate. So when 27 came around, I hit 27 and went, you haven't made it. So... I went, okay, now it's time to go and do a Master's of Artificial Intelligence. And they wouldn't let me do it because I hadn't done an honours year. So I said, if I high distinction six months worth of subjects that you choose, can I go in? So they chose the two hardest. <laughs> I went, okay, so if I can, if I can um, HD average this session, let's do it. And so I crushed myself getting this HD average for these two subjects in advanced logic, modal logic, and uh, whatever else it was, and then got into masters, started a masters, gave my proposal, which was that I think AI in general is going in the entirely wrong direction, and we should, uh, how we think about intelligence and all that is inherently flawed. And they went, yeah, that's lovely, Paul, but you're going to have to do something that we want you to do. And I was like, well, what's the point of that? And they go, well, what's the point of your thing? What are you going to get out of it? I was like, I don't know. That's why it's research. Like, I meant to go down and find out, but they've changed what research is in this country now because everyone needs to be metered and measured. They go, we need a 
what outcome are you going to get from it? I was like, if you know what outcome you're going to get from it, what's the point of researching it? I got to a point where I couldn't do what I wanted to do in AI. I was just stuck. And for the first time in my life, I, I, I had a feeling, right? Like, it's like, I've, like, shut off all feelings up until now. I just had a feeling. And, I, and the feeling How was, I need to this would be now 29. You had a feeling. I had a feeling, yeah. yeah. Nailed it. Or was it 27? No, so I was 27 when I started. So maybe 28, okay. around then. And I went, I need to get out of life. Like, I, I couldn't describe it. I, was, I just need to get, I, I'm so uncomfortable, right, existing. And I was like, this is so weird. I, I feel like I just need to go to the Blue Mountains for a week lock myself in a hut and just write. And it was the strongest feeling I'd ever had for anything ever. And at the time, I, there was another actress friend, because I was still doing little acting things on the side, and I just met her. And she's like, hey, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm fine. I, was like, I just feel like, I, I'm fine. <laughs> That's, I'm fine, even though I want to like, be out of life, like, which is possibly the worst feeling. It was never like, uh, like I want to kill myself or end it or anything. I, I just, it's like I want to get out of a hot bath. Like that get out and she, and I was like okay I just need to get I feel like I want to go away to the Blue Mountains for a week and she said well I'm going to the Blue Mountains next week for 10 days and I went really and <laughs> she's like yeah like I'm doing um, um, silent meditation for 10 days and I went ah. and I was like okay yeah but I don't think I can really afford that right now and she's like it's free she goes the only thing is you won't be able to write and I was like, eh, like, you've got to get to a point where you're at your wit's end, have tried everything, and you don't know what to do anymore. And for, for smart people, right, um, who are really, like, stupid people, like, it's smart people are people that are doing really well in life but not enjoying it at all and don't think that's a problem. So I was like, I'll do, I will do for the first time what someone has suggested to me before I know whether or not the outcome is good. Mm. So I'd say it was the first time of genuinely trusting. Like we've confused the shit out of ourselves in this generation at the moment of what trust means. Trust, we think trust means someone telling us something, then us researching it, deciding whether or not we think it's good, and then looking at proof for it, and then, okay, now I'll do it. So that's not trust. Trust is following someone without certainty. Mm. Obviously, you can go too far when you go into entirely like blind faith, and then you have all the problem that we have with religion right now. But you need at least some degree of trust in people or in at least your friends. Yeah. So I went to this, I'd say this is the first time I did something trusting someone else's experience. Mm. Like she'd done it before, said she got a lot out of it, right? She said it had helped with this feeling I had. And I'm like, ah, well, there's no proof of that. Like, ah. um, and, and I just went, because I was at such a wit's end, I was like, okay, I will do it. I will try it. And so I got so terrified in the lead up to it. And I mean proper terrified. Like terror is not something that we experience in life in general. But there's something that in, like, deep in you kind of knows what you're about to face. And I was like, I'm so scared that I'll lose my ability to do comedy. I was like, because like, this neuroticism that I had is that I obviously haven't lost. This neuroticism I have is like is what caused me to do comedy and, and it's what allows me to see things outside and blah blah blah. And I have to write pages and pages of just of what I was scared of was happening. It was me trying to gain some semblance of control. 
over a situation that was unknown. And then I went there and, and they go, what I liked about it, they go, the only faith that we require is like, they, they just say, we want you to just do what we say, right? And you should get this positive outcome. If you don't get it, then stop doing it. It's like, like it's only do, you should only do things where people say you're going to get the outcome. If the outcome comes and you enjoy the outcome, um, and they're like, yeah, you're going to sit down and basically not say anything, not interact with anyone, and then pay attention only to how you feel for 10 days. And then you go, okay. And then you do that. And everyone I talked to, and including myself when I went, I was like, that would drive me insane. I would go insane in that, in that environment. And the interesting thing about that feeling is that that itself is insane. Like the idea that you can't sit and not do anything for 10 days because you'll flip out. That's worrying. Mm. It's worrying that we have a society that thinks if they're ever not entertained for long enough, they will flip out. And the truth is you go there and you do flip out internally, right? You never do anything because you just sit on a cushion doing nothing. Like it's all, it's all in your own head. As far as anyone else knows, you're just like this most serene motherfucker there. But you have all of these extreme experiences mm. while it's in there and you become better at handling them. Mm. Like the pain that you've had in your shoulder forever, the one that's like really digs in and it only comes up when you're in certain situations. It's like that pain, you go, once you get used to that pain and just go, eh, like it's going to be there forever, it just goes. And then you realize that it comes from something like, oh, it's whenever I feel threatened or whenever I'm in conflict or whenever I'm this. And so for that whole week, it was so intense whilst also being the only time I ever felt truly relaxed. And I came out and then after, I think, after 10 days, it came out and said, you know, you never really try. You never really tried at the acting thing. I'm kind of merging too. I did, I've done it now four, uh, five times. It's like going to the gym. It's the kind of thing that you get better at handling this the more often you go. And so the second time I did it, yeah, this would have been when I was 29, was when it said, you refuse to say that you're an actor because that means you can fail in front of everyone. I was so scared of failing in front of people. I cared so much about what other people thought that I couldn't even see how scared I was mm. right and so the reason that it was always just a hobby and I always had my other career is like because then I've got something to fall back on and if it doesn't work out it was just something I tried I'm not that idiot that threw his life away trying it and it was like how that's pathetic like it's a pathetic way to be and interestingly it made me look at on um, like there was a, a quote that I always hated which was dare to dream I was like oh you wanker like Dare to dream and everything. Like I hated it, hated it so much. Now here's an interesting thing: if you hate something and you need it stamped out of life, there's probably something deep in you that can't acknowledge it, right? And what I noticed in this process, after going through almost it feels like torture of of dealing with everything you're ever scared of, after I got through that, it's like you never really tried, you never really put your ass on the line for it. It changed everything. So um, it changed. Walk out and just be like, "Cool, I'm getting an agent. 
I'm making my own work, I'm writing, like it was all just guns blazing. Well, well, I'd, well I'd had an agent before then and that was just lucky. That was because like, it was like life was giving me something. I, I feel like I'm the only person that had the, had like the dream of being a computer scientist, but then life forced me into acting. Like it was, <laughs> like, oh, it, like it really, it really does feel like that, that I really got pushed into this. Yeah, and I, I'd had an agent, and I'd never really committed to that either. Like, I was never really trying. I'd do as little as I could in terms of promotion and blah and all this, but as soon as I admitted to myself, and it was, it was actually in another you know, like introspective course that I figured this out directly, um, that I said to myself, I want to be an actor. That's what I want to do. And as soon as you say that out loud, everything changes very quickly. Like the whole way that you look at life changes. It went from not, oh, okay, if I get this, then I'll be, uh, I'll be able to survive. If I get this, I'll be able to do it. If I get this, it became, it doesn't matter what happens, you're stuck. There's something very powerful about being stuck in a situation. You just go, well, I want to be an actor. That's what it, I've, I've admitted it. Now that I've admitted it, there is no other choice. I know I'm not going to be happy doing anything else. So it's like, well, what if I'm not getting work? And I'm doing it? It's like, well, that's just a part of your life now. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's something yeah. you're stuck with. It's like, what if you never any make, make any money from it? It's like, well, then that's what you're stuck with. It doesn't become like, oh, then I can go to this or whatever. Like I've always had the, I can do programming in the background, back of my head. But all that does is give me less incentive to work really hard at, Doing what I do, you know. You know, you work harder when you're forced to do something, like the night before an exam. It's like, oh, I've cram, I've got to do this. If that cram, I've got to do this the night before is paying your rent, it's like, oh, okay, fine. Then I'll do that self test that I was meant to do, and I'll do the promotion I was told to do. Yeah. Whereas if you had this other thing, then you don't have to work as hard. I'm really encouraged the fact that I did um, a musical recently, and there were a couple of kids who were in it that were talking about how. One kid in particular, he was like, oh, yeah, um, we have quiet time at school, like where we sit down and we just meditate. And yeah, that's my favorite part of the day. And I was like, yes, yes. yes. Like hearing a young, particularly young boy talking about that, that's very, very positive, very positive. Because it's the kind of training, like, I can't believe that it took me till I was 29 to know that this existed. Like oh, same. The fact I, mean, that it's, I didn't start till I was 24, really. No right. idea. Yeah. And it prompts me to go, well, you know, our job by definition is to tell the truth and hold the mirror up to people and, you know, yeah. be the mouthpiece and be the brave ones who speak for people who otherwise can't, whatever. It's like, it doesn't make sense to me that we're, this isn't taught to us earlier. It should be taught to everyone, but particularly for our job. Like, Do you want to know why not? Why? I, I think the reason why not is because it's very, very, very hard in a different way. Now, as someone who grew up um, with um, a liberal, like uh, as in following the liberals, liberal family, da, 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 um, who cares about the arts? It's a waste of time. If you can't make any money, then get over yourself. That's what you get for choosing a stupid profession that doesn't make any money. Right? That was my, that's what I grew up with. Right? Um, and there is some truth to that. Right. But like anything that with the absence of its opposite is, is horrendous. The work that I'd say that I did to be um, as good as I could in the field that I did and doing artificial intelligence, all that, all that stuff was hard. Mm. Right. It's hard and, and not everyone can do it. 
but it's hard in an easy way. It's hard in a non-confrontational, non like the only thing I'm giving up are hours a day and interaction with people and blah. Right. Right. So it's, it's hard, right? And it's a discipline, right? But everything I've done since then is in practice very easy. Like it's very easy to say some lines that you've learned in a row on stage, but no one can do it. Mm. No one can do it. Like it's, it's, you're running into, you're running into everything that you actually fear and what people want. They go, I want to go through a, a pleasant life where I'm not scared and I'm, I'm, I feel safe and I'm blah, like all of this. I want to feel good forever. Right. And then they end up feeling terrible. They end up feeling like they want to end their life. And, oh my God, I could have been so many things. It's like, no, you couldn't have. You couldn't have because you could not face yourself. Mm. Right? You know you took the easy route and now you're paying for it. Like I'd say even now, even if I bailed now, like if I had um, responsibilities that came up or things that changed, I, go, I still wouldn't give up everything that I've done. Right? You could like, it was, it was a really confronting thing when I hit 32 and I was like, I was desolate i had no money and i was like really i was down to like i think 60 dollars to my name and then i got a tram fine in melbourne and went i can't pay for that on the spot and they're like well it's 225 later it's like holy shit i was like how did it ever happen how did i get here and it's like how am i how am i working so hard and then every time i get to a point like that in life i'm forced to really look at and really, really evaluate what I'm not doing that I know I should be doing. Mm -hmm. What are you letting go? And it's like, well, you're so obsessed by being good at what you do that you're no longer enjoying it and you're becoming bad at it. Because mm -hmm. there has to be the element of joy in it. I'm only discovering this now as I'm saying it. Yeah, that if, if you're not joyful and having fun in it, that's what people pay to see. People pay to see people going through trauma and all that and enjoying it. Yeah. It's like if, if this person yeah. can go through obvious trauma on stage, and I mean genuine trauma, when you actually do, there's two styles of acting. One is pretending and deciding how you want to deliver every line and being very structured about it. It's what I did for most of my life. The other one is when you can um, set yourself up with enough um, psychological kind of yardsticks so that when you're on stage, um, it's almost like doing what's called psychodrama. Mm -hmm. uh, which is a therapeutic technique where you set up people around and blah, and your body believes you're in that experience. So what people pay to see is people that are willing to, A, go into horrendous feelings on stage in front of them, but also enjoy life simultaneously. So it gives people, it's like, so people get to see other people going through experiences and go, oh my God, I've been that person. I am the same. I'm the same as that person. And they're still okay. And I think that's the greatest healing power that acting has to offer. And I think that I'd say 95 to 99% of the acting that you see isn't that right. And it's now all posturing and it's all people are so obsessed with oh, looking good and blah, 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 that there's so much money in the field. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so, like, it all just feels a little anxious sometimes, not even at like the top, top, top Hollywood level, even at the, you know, just around Sydney or around Melbourne or whatever, it feels like everyone's very busy. Um, no, generalization. Yeah. Like a lot of people who are making themselves very busy out of fear of not working. There's no personal development. There's no mindfulness. There's no sort of discussion of nutrition or physical, not like physical exercise, like getting fucking into the gym. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. I'm just talking about moving. That 
you see them acting or you see acting or whatever and it, it, there's no there is no joy how can there be joy because yeah. everyone's like got themselves up into this like worked up state like how how could it ever be good because if you stop worrying about all of that then it doesn't matter anymore right um, and and the more that you are reliant self-reliant um like busyness is another thing. Like I used to be busy all the time. Oh, that made, used to make me feel great. Oh, it used to make me, I was so busy. I made myself sick. I was burnt out all the time, but it was like, no, I'm not successful as an actor. I have to, I have to prove to everyone that I'm working very hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way of, of like everyone knows how to be better at acting. Everyone's got that one thing that they're meant to do that they haven't done, whether it's the show reel they're meant to do or that scene they're meant to put down, or they'll look at someone, they'll look at someone who's put a show down and be like, oh my God, that's awful. I could do so much better. And that's never true. Mm. It's never true because otherwise you would have already done it, right? It's just like the people that bring other people down, it's like, fine, if you need to do that, okay, like knock yourself out. Um, try not to damage people while you do so. But every time that you say, I could do, if you replace that with actually doing the thing, you will come to realize that you lack a certain, uh, like you'll find that you lack in a way that deep down you know you do, right? The reason that people don't do things is because once they're done, that's the best they can do. They're no longer their potential. They are exactly what they've done. And that's hard because that will very rarely be what you believed you could do in your head. But until you do that thing and have the criticism and have people, like one of the first plays I ever wrote, people, the review I got was death, the death of comedy. Da, da, da. Oh. Like from when it started, from when it started 1988 to um, the year that like 2005, the death of comedy. This is the worst thing ever created, da, 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 blah, blah, blah. And at that time I was directing another show. And when I came in, you can tell when everyone's read it and everyone knows. So I came in and everyone was kind of murmuring. I walk in, everyone goes silent. <laughs> and I just went, what is everyone so quiet for? We've got to murder some more comedy. And <laughs> it was like, well, what, what else are you going to do? Because everyone's like, well, like, we know he's funny. Like, he's like, there are parts of it. It's like, okay, maybe that show wasn't the best or whatever, or maybe that person hated him or, but who knows? But either way, we're still doing the show and we want it to be great, so let's just keep going. Um, and you have to be willing to suffer that. Mm. Like this, this literally the to be or not to be is the freaking actors go to. It's like, is it best to, to be in this experience, like to have this experience of, of pain and the slings and arrows of, like, of when things go good and when things go bad? Is it better to have that or not? Mm. Like, is it better to not exist? And a lot of people choose to not exist. Mm. Mm. They, they say outrageous fortune, and it is outrageous. It's the, the praise and so forth you get from people. You're like, that's so unnecessary, like, like in some instances. And then the other side, it's like that review. It's like, that's so unnecessary. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's outrageous fortunes of either way. And, and I, I choose to be, like, whereas formerly I didn't. Um, yeah, so you, you have to be willing to make things and put things out there. The person that you're judging is currently, you're the source of suffering. Yeah. In fact, what you fear yeah. 
what you fear deep down is that other people will treat you as horribly as you treat other people. And, and the thing is, the more that you can convince yourself that you suck and you're this, it's like that's a protection mechanism, mm. right? Uh, it protects you from actual pain. I did um, my first solo stand-up show down in Melbourne last year, sorry, last wow. year. And I had a friend of mine who I, who I really quite respect in the industry go, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm doing this show here. I'm going to try and figure out if I can get some of the stuff that I've learned about introspection into a comedy show. I'm trying to, going to see if I can put both in. And he's like, have you ever done a full, full show before? And I was like, no. He goes, how many stand-up sets have you done? I go, oh, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 or something like that. And he's like, how can you embarrass yourself in front of people? You're ruining the industry by going down there. People will see you do this and they'll, um, um, and they'll never want to go see live comedy again because you've ruined it for them. Whoa. Right? Awesome. Yeah. And so I said, that's fair. Right, and I'll go. I'll do whatever I can to make sure that's not the case. And if you if you get so obsessed with how the information is delivered to you, because you delivered some very important information to me, which is that I hadn't really thought about the fact that what I'm doing is insane, that it's extremely difficult, that other people work for four years or something to do an hour of that, and then you're quite arrogant to believe that you can go down and do a show in an hour in a style that's never been done before, right? And at the time, I hadn't really been working very hard on it. And it encouraged me to work very hard on it, right? And, it's, and I could feel my, like the same feeling of, oh, I want to get out of this, pushing against me. It's like, the reason I'm not working is because of this, oh, I'm fighting against myself and I don't even know what I'm fighting against. Mm. Like, it's very easy, and this is going to sound stupid, it's very easy to write an hour show, right? You just sit there and just keep writing words until you have an hour, right? Like, whether it's good or not is, is irrelevant. Like it's, it's very easy to do that thing. And I just couldn't do it. And I know in my heart of hearts that if I just write an hour-long show, right, then at least I've got it there and I can start refining making it better. But I couldn't write it. And it was because I was writing something that matters to me. And because it matters, it matters more how people perceive it. And you're fighting, you're trying to run into the fire of, you're like, I'm going to put myself out there to be hurt, to be shamed, to be, like, be treated exactly like this person has just treated me. But then you go like, oh, but if I didn't have that, then would I work so hard? Would I be trying so hard? Would I be finding out so much? Like it's almost necessary. And once you see it as necessary, like it becomes easy. Like it wasn't like, I don't think I would have taken that feedback as well, like 10 years. Actually, I definitely would have taken that feedback 10 years ago as well. But to be able to look at it and say that this person isn't trying to hurt me. Sure, they're trying to stop me, discourage me, blah, all of that. But it's because they themselves have struggled to do what I'm doing. And in a way, they're trying to protect me. And if I succeeded it, it means that they have no excuse for not succeeding themselves, or it means that they have to get better. Yeah. The one biggest thing, I think, for mental health that is so important for artists is to dissociate yourself and who you are from your capacity to create. Yes. Now, if you, yes. if you are an actor, right, then um, because you can portray different characters, etc., right, and you have that skill and you have a, um, a certain degree of, of, you've got a certain expectation of, your, of what acting should be. Like you grew up and you go, I could do that or I could do better than that, da, da, da. Now, what that means is that you could potentially do that if you worked your ass off at it. Because what exists in you, what you feel, what you see, 
right? If you never put that in, in, into the world, right? So all these ideas that you have for shows and blah, things that can be created, if you die, they may as well not exist or have ever existed, right? Now, they're always so perfect in your head. You know, these like, like perfect forms in your head of these shows and how your acting should be and what you will create. Now, those things are what you could have created before life fucked you up, right? Before you went through life and got scared and got hurt and blah, 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 that's what you could have done. The rest of your life is figuring out how to remove the barriers that you've put up in your life so that you can be how you were when you were born, when you were a kid, when you were perfect, when you were, when you were fully self-expressed. And your goal then is to cre keep creating, have it criticized, have everything that you fear said about it so that you can then look at it. And then you've got this tangible thing in the world that you've done and these, this feedback that you've had. And you can go, oh, okay. And then you have to look at it and go, it's not as good as I thought it was. And that can hit you. It's not as good as I thought it was. Now, the idea was as good as you thought it was. Your capacity to put that into the world is what needs work. Like your capacity to, to take this idea. Like when you, if you imagine like what a cat looks like and then try and draw it. Yeah. Right. The first time you draw yeah. it, like, like the, the mechanics of what it requires to take something ethereal and make it real is extraordinary. Mm. And it takes years and years and years and years. Like the, that whole classic Picasso thing where someone says, Hey, can you draw this portrait of my wife? And then he does it in 10 minutes and they go, how much is that going to cost? And he's like, that's $10,000. He goes, it took you 10 minutes to draw it. He goes, yeah, but it took me a lifetime to be able to draw it in 10 minutes. Mm. Right. And, and that no great artist was good immediately. Now, that doesn't mean that what they do, like everything that I think I've done, I go, there's always been people that have seen something in it. They go, there's something in it. And while that's something in it still exists, that's what you latch on to and go, okay, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. Until eventually you move from a point where people are coming to your things because they're your friends and they're obligated to. You have to eventually trans, you have to, you have to go from that to, People coming to see you because they want the entertainment that you give out and it's worth the money you charge from it. Every single artist can make money immediately by doing their own shows routinely, weekly, all the time. Mm. End, of, end of problem that you have with money. Mm. Right? It's just that that's insanely hard. <laughs> Blah. Having an excuse. And this is one thing, one thing, and this will be somewhat controversial, that... I think really kills some women in stand-up comedy in particular is, is, is harder for women. It's like, yeah, it's harder for women. Great. Right. But you've, that's the hand you've been dealt. Deal with that. And when you're not getting anywhere, don't fall back on that. Yep. Everyone can accept yeah. that it is hard for you. But if you fall back on that, it's like me falling back on the fact that I was raised repressed and then just go, Oh, well, because of that, it's harder for me. And therefore I'm failing because of that and then get angry and make a crusade about it, right? Now, you should make a crusade about it, and don't give yourself an excuse. Don't give yourself an out. And it's an easy story to buy into, but it doesn't cause anything to change. Now, that's not to be confused with the fact that there shouldn't be um, initiatives like ABCs putting in at the moment, like, the, um, like gender matters. Like that, that should occur, but if you're not responsible for policy, right, or not making active changes in that or, or actively doing something about it. If that's not your thing, if you're not a politician, then leave it. 
mm. and go back to being better at what you do. Mm. Like I had to go back, I had to go to school for another nine months with people that were a decade younger than me, for eight months in a city that I was unfamiliar with, down in Melbourne, right? Because I finally noticed what I sucked at. Like it became very apparent to me, I go, that after I did Larry Moss and Howard Fine, it's like, you're not very good at this. Now that doesn't mean that I haven't done stuff that's been good before, or I don't have stuff that I've worked on that's been quite successful, but I am not good by my own standard, right? And I was like, I need, after I did Howard Fine, I was like, oh my God, I'm not a good actor anymore. It's like, I'm right at the bottom. Right, I'm at the bottom now of what I can now see. Mm. So it's like, I've gotten up the first, I'm up the, at the base camp of Everest, mm. right? And then when I, except I thought that was the top. Right? <laughs> and, and then I just had to accept, it's like, okay, everything you've done until now, now sucks by your new set of standards. Yeah. And that's great. Doesn't mean you should hate anything you've done. I still quite like some of the stuff I've done, right? Yeah, but yeah. you have to acknowledge, you go, now there's a new peak that I'm climbing up. <laughs>